everybody. Yeah. Decent thing for me to do after all the nice things that for yourself to die, probably. Well, I didn't prepare anything exactly. I got some old notes here. I figured, well, what the hell are you turning? If I get killed on the way up here, look at the time I wasted. But I don't think that those of us in AA ever have to prepare anything. We've been there. We've been on both sides of the road. And at times like this, that I have wished God had put a window in my heart, so that you see how grateful and happy I am to be here at your fourth anniversary. To me, it's a great tribute to any one person that is asked to talk at an anniversary meeting. I think there is something special in each of our lives, because I'm sure to those of you that have come through this group from the start and have had the tough times and the good times along the way, have known what a tough struggle it is. And at times you felt like giving up, no doubt about it. But if I can remember back a little bit that I was just glancing at in chapter two of the big book, there is a solution for you and I. Any time that we ever think that there isn't, we better go back and pick up the big book. Because we will find the answer there if we look for it. It is entirely up to you and me. Out of this thing, just what we want. If you're new here, believe me, we'd like to welcome you to the finest way of life on this earth. Because you can accept or reject. It's entirely up to you. If you like what we got, and you want it, it's free for free. There's no charge. There's no price tag on this thing. It can't be bought. And most of the people that's in it can't be bought. Now, when we was drinking and sitting on the bar stool alongside of some of you same people, we could be bought then. We sell our souls for a drink of whiskey. Oh, many times. We've all done it. Maybe you haven't in your way of thinking. But I think if we take a soul-searching inventory, we will find that we have. Because I think that there's some place in the Bible that says man will destroy himself. What is the alcoholic doing when he's drinking? but destroying himself, the slow torture. I know of these, rather these torture chambers and everything that they have, but I don't think there's any more torture than the torture that the alcoholic goes through. I don't think there's anything worse than the hangovers, the sickness that the alcoholic has. And believe me, it is a sickness. It's a very, very many emotions to it. The alcoholic's emotions are like a mixed-up ball of steel wool. When we're sober and throw a little whiskey into us, then, brother, we really get off. We really get mixed up. We'll get mad, we'll get crying, and we'll be trying to make love at the same time. You talk about mixed-up emotions. Brother, we got them. Believe me on that. But what does AA do? AA helps us to channel our emotions so that we can gradually accept this way of life. I'm not going too deeply into my life because I don't think that's important. I used to, I, when I go to prison and I talk to my, my buddies, that's a little bit different. But I think that the important thing here is to give you a very quick summary of my life. I drank ever since I was able to carry a beer pail. I was probably drunk the first time at the age of 14, 15, 16, along in there. And being small for my age, I found a way out. And believe me, it was a way out, I thought. But I progressed with alcohol. I became gradually came to Michigan. I became a professional fighter. I boxed for a lot of years and along with the boxing I became a professional blues fighter too. 
And I found out there was one thing that I couldn't make was old man barley corn. Because drinking cost me better than 10 years of my life in prisons and jails. Oh, and I spent a few years in Skid Row. And for things that I done while under the influence of alcohol, because I was sick, I was put in prison. I'm not rationalizing nothing, and I'm not making excuses. Because right today, I think that if a guy come along and I had a chance to kidnap him for $152,000 and I thought I could get away with it, I think I might try it. <laughs> and I tried it. But I didn't get away with it. I eventually give myself up and I wound up doing five, ten years in Jackson. And I'd done most of the five. Because while I was there, I learned that the easiest way to do that time was to stay drunk because I didn't know if I was in jail or where the hell I was. And I got out, and pretty soon I was in jails again, and pretty soon I was back in Jackson again. It isn't important, I don't think, the amount of time that we spent any place. The important fact is that I share with you a little bit of what happened to me, so that I may light a candle, so that you too won't fall in some of the pitfalls that I fell in. And right about here, I'd like to thank and be grateful to all the people that have had trouble with this program and is back here today, that had the courage to walk up them steps into this room. And believe me, from the things that I understand of some of these people, it takes courage. Because it's you that has lit that candle and showed me the pitfalls. It was you that told me that AA, once you become associated with it, it spoils your drinking. And I know that because I've listened to you fellas and gals tell me of the troubles. I've watched you. And I don't want to go through the same thing if I don't have to. And I don't have to unless I want to. Because in chapter 2 it tells us many things about the way out for us. We cannot help ourselves. After you came to this program and had a period of sobriety and all of a sudden this obsession of the mind starts going. A nice warm day today, you go down the street and you see this, these signs flashing on and off, beer, wine, whiskey, so on and so forth. It's jeepers, creepers. I haven't had a drink for about three months. Now I think a couple of good cold ones wouldn't hurt me a lick. I'm sure that I could handle them. Hell yeah, yes, you deserve them. You want them. You've been sober three months. After the alcoholic takes the first one, he or she don't drink then because they want to. They drink then because they have to. The obsession of the mind has towered them into taking the drink. And once they take the drink, the mind says to the body, okay, you take over. I got them started. And again, we're compulsive drinkers. I know about the compulsion to drink. I was that type of drinker. Maybe I wouldn't drink for six months. There has been times. Been rare. And all of a sudden, three o'clock in the morning, I'd get up. And in the dark, I'd be trying to get my clothes on. And my wife would put the light on. I didn't know she heard me. She'd say, what the hell are you getting dressed for? And I'd say, I got a deal. I got to go meet a guy. I got a big deal on. You know what the big deal was? I had to go get a bottle. Oh, I know about that compulsion. I even had it after I come to AA. So along with all these trials and tribulations that we have with life and this alcoholic problem, we can do two things. We can trudge the road with our problem, we, I mean we, me and my problem and the bottle, down through the pitfalls, the horror and hell, or we can trudge the happy road with AA and God. It's entirely up to us. I like this way of living. You give it to me. And you didn't ask me how much money I had to join this organization. 
And when you people called on me, you didn't ask me what side of the tracks I come from. You didn't ask me the color of my skin. You didn't ask me my religion. And the greatest thing of all was you didn't say that you had to be from a certain standard or class in order to belong. You said if you're an alcoholic, you're at home. Welcome. You're one of us. And they has taught me so many things that I'll be eternal grateful for. They has taught me that there's only one race. That's the human race. And in AA we do things together. And it has also taught me that there's only one religion here. That's a spiritual way of living. When each of us leave here, we can go to the choice of a church of our choice. It's entirely up to us. There's so many things that can be said about AA and the people in it. But the only one that I can say anything about is me. I can't say anything about you. I can tell you what happened to me and how grateful I am that some of the things that happened did happen. Because I'm not so sure otherwise. I think that all of us have to go just as far as we go before we're ever going to do anything. I think that we have to just get sick of ourselves before we're finally going to start to want to do something about ourselves. I like to say that if you can just take one thing from this meeting, remember when, remember when, when you made a phone call, when you was pushed, you was dragged, you was threatened, I don't care how you came. But remember when you came. Just remember that, if you will. I don't think that any of us will want to go back to where we was when we called AA, or our wife called, or the police called, or the hospital called. We were damn near ready for the morgue to call. And I don't think any of us want to go back there. And all I got to do is remember when I used to crawl up out that hole down there by the CKNS tracks, crawl up out them weeds, and maybe look around down there to see if any of us lost any pennies, and I could get out in the street and try and get the price. And sometimes I was shaking so bad I couldn't even ask for the price. But I could walk into one of these dingy bars and ask for a double shot of wine and throw it down and walk out. Oh, I couldn't go back there again. But I got many eye-opener that way. And I remember that. And I also remember the while a lot of these people in this program told me that the only difference between the drunk in the penthouse in this silken gown and the one down the railroad tracks is altitude. Give them a both a fifth of whiskey and they'll reach the same level in one hell of a hurry. Believe me on that. So here we are and we're together. Why? Because we want to do something about our problem. So if you can just take and remember when you came to AA and then ask yourself, what was I looking for? And then I think that you're starting on the right track. Because I think that it's as we're handed these tools in AA. And I think to most of us, it looks like a jigsaw. I know they handed me a lot of these little booklets and they handed me the big book and they said, here, read it. And I couldn't see it, let alone read it. My wife called AA, well, she's my ex-wife at that time. And if you don't think that alcohol is a remover, brother, start looking around. Because I can remember that I, at one time I had an automobile. It wasn't too good, but it was an automobile. I had a boat, I had a motor, I had a lot of fishing equipment, I had a double-barrel shotgun. Oh, it wasn't all paper, but I had it. <clears throat> and we had furniture in the house and everything else. And then I can remember at the age of 33, when I got too old to work, work so I ran away from home. And I used to come back to the house and I'd steal the stuff out of the house. 
I remember one time that after the car was gone, that the trailer and boat was sitting in the backyard, and I'm pushing this trailer and boat down the street, and I got $20 for it. Now, I can remember that, and I can remember when I walked down the street with a Davenport on my back. You ever see a guy going down Wooder Avenue with a Davenport on his back? I went down Wooder Avenue or any place else. I had a friend in a gin mill that didn't have no Davenport. He needed that Davenport. I didn't have no whiskey. So I got a gallon of whiskey for it. When my wife come home and she seen this wicker furniture in there from the fort, she says, what's becoming a Davenport in a big chair? Honey, you deserve it. Something better. I'm getting the Davenport recovered for you. You're working. She was. She'd make it $12 a week. And I was stealing a little bit off her. And she said, well, gee, that's nice of you to send that out and get it fixed and covered for me. I said, glad to do it, honey. You're earning it. You're the breadwinner now. So the weeks went by, and I went away, and I come back, and uh, I was down making a tour, looking at my property down at the tracks there. She says to me, what about this? Where do you send this Davenport and this chair to be fixed and covered? I said, oh, I said that. I said, well, I said, I'll tell you. I think there might be a little delay in you getting it back. I said, fact of the matter is, I don't think you can get it back. She says, why not? She says, uh, are the people going out of business or something? I said, no, no, they're still in business. I said, but the place that I took it, they don't uh, repair stuff like that. I said, they give you this stuff that's a remover. I said, whiskey. You see, the whiskey was removing the furniture out of my house. It already removed that car and that boat and motor, and it was gradually removing the furniture. We didn't have no more rugs on the floor. Didn't even have a little full rug to put in front of the, uh, we didn't have a bathtub. We didn't have that big a house. We only had a little stool in there. Didn't have a throw rug for putting in front of the bed even. All the boot away had throw rugs. And this, I come in there one day and I, I through the front door because I got damn tired of coming through the back door and every time I come through there and she'd meet me and she'd say, all right, take them off. She'd undress me, take my clothes off me. And you, you've seen them scrub an elephant, haven't you? Well, that's the way my wife used to scrub me with that brush in cold water. I couldn't understand why, but I could now. She didn't want to get lousy, and believe me, I was lousy when I come on track. So I, so I come through the front door, and this day when I come through there on the buffet, it was something like this today, hot, and this big fan was going there, back and forth. I looked around, and I didn't see that game place. I said, where the hell did that fan come from? I don't ever remember hot in a fan. So I grabbed the fan on one hand and the cord in the other, and I had that baby in hot before the blade stopped turning. <laughs> Believe me. I come home, and she says, uh, as about a week later, what become of that fan that was on the buffet? She says, the neighbors loaned it to us. I said, the hell they did. She says, yeah, it was awful hot, hot in this apartment. And I said, well, I says, uh, I know where it is. I says, I got $2 for it. Now, if you want to give me the $2, I'll go get it. Well, you know she didn't. Then I told her about the time that she was hollering about it being hot, and I come home one time and it was cold in there. And I told her about trying to freeze me out because I didn't come home very often. And she told me then that, that the cold man had cut us off. We couldn't get no more coal. And, of course, you know us alcoholics, and we got to be big shots right away. And I said, I'll be damned if they can do that to you. I'll see that you get some coal. And so I left, and when I come back, I finally come back, she had a quarter of a ton of coal in the basement. I said, see there? Don't have to worry about it. The old man takes care of everything. He really takes good care of you. you. You never had it so good. I went down to Salvation Army and begged him for some coal. But I had a foot on the axe that she never had it so good that I was looking out for her. Oh, yes, I stole everything out of the house. Everybody lived better than I did. And yet, when they handed me the tools of Alcoholic Anonymous, and I looked at them, and they read them to me at first, when these two men come to see me. I was in a tavern, because they'd already said they'd be there the night before, and they didn't come. 
And so I went upstairs and I come back down the next morning and I called them. And when I called AA, myself, a lovely lady answered the phone and she says, this is Alcoholic Anonymous. Could we help you? Well, boy, about that time, she knocked me around in the seat of my pants. Because ordinarily, if anyone said, could they help me? I'd say, yeah, buy me a couple of drinks. But that was the first time in many years anyone says, could they help me? And I listened to And she started asking me what I, my trouble was. And I said, well, I, I haven't got no trouble. I said, but my wife called last night. I says, and you people said there'd be someone down here at 7 o'clock. And uh, nobody showed up. She says, well, is uh, your wife an alcoholic? I said, well, gee, I, I don't know. And she says, uh, well, how much does your wife drink? And I said, oh, probably about two beers a year. She says, uh, well, alcohol has no problems with it then, is it? I said, well, I don't know. She says, uh, well, who wants to quit drinking? I said, well, I, I says, I guess she wants me to quit drinking. I mentioned that I would. And she says, uh, well, do you want to quit drinking? And I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, are you an alcoholic? I said, I don't know. I didn't know what in the hell an alcoholic was. I didn't know if it was some kind of a disease or it was contagious or what the hell it was. I didn't know. She says, well, do you drink a whole lot? And I said, oh, I says, uh, oh, I don't think too much. She says, well, does drinking cause you any trouble? Do you get in any trouble? I said, oh, nothing too serious. Kidnapping, armed robbery, unarmed robbery, cut a man, kill a man with an automobile. Nothing serious. She says, uh, well, you want to quit drinking then? And I said, well, I said, I guess so. She said, well, uh, there'll be a couple of men down to see you tonight then. Now, I thought that this AA was for businessmen. And that uh, if you, you went with these here people and they taught you how to drink and they got in a room behind closed doors and they drank. And if you got in any trouble, they helped you out. Well, I was going to keep them guys busy. So they said they'd be down at 7 o'clock that night. And I said right away, what the hell's the matter with right now? You know, drank 25, 30 years, all of a sudden I'm going to quit drinking. I want it now, now, like all the other alcoholics. She says, oh, they're all working now. Working? What in the hell kind of businessmen are they? They, got to be, they can't get away to come and see me. She says, well, there'll be somebody down. I says, uh, okay. She says, are you drinking now? And I said, oh, not too much. She said, well, don't drink anymore. I said, no, I won't drink anymore. After I hung the phone up, I said, hell no, I'll drink just as much so. Well, come 7 o'clock, and I was over to the tavern, and I had 12 to go, and I had some whiskey home. So I come back after my kid come over to get me, and I put my hand in his, and he led me home. And I uh, walked in, and I set these 12 beers down at the dining room table, and I opened the icebox door, and I said to Larry and Jimmy, I said, be right with you, fellas. Just do as I take care of my beer. And uh, so I piled nine in the icebox, and I left three sitting on the table. I said, you fellas care for a bottle of beer in there? No, we're not drinking today. The hell with them, that much more for me. So I stuck two back in the icebox. And I said, you don't care if I have one, do you? Larry's a very sharp old cookie. He said, no, go ahead. If you accept this program, it'll be your last. Last. I brushed that baby off right quick. So I went in there, and I sit there, and I told him about all the automobile wrecks I'd been in and the running gun fights I'd been in. And hell, I'd never shot at in my life. I have shot a lot of times. But they, I figured they was lying to me, some of the things they told me. And, you know, in the alcoholics book, the first liar don't never have a chance. So when they got all through, they left. I don't remember too much what they said that night. But that's why I always will never fail to make the call, the first call on the alcoholic. For the simple reason that he or she may never remember one thing that you said. But they'll remember you were there. You were there. And finally they found somebody that cared. Finally they found somebody that wanted them and accepted them. And that was the way. 
in my case. Because when I come downstairs the next day to go to the icebox, and I open the icebox morning, this icebox door on this morning, I could visualize Larry and Jimmy sitting in the front room. And I think on the morning of October 31st, 1945, I had my spiritual awakening in the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. Because right then and there, the thought come to me what Larry said when he left the house. That if I was sincere for the first time in my life, he didn't say anything about being honest, he knew damn right well I wasn't honest. I would pray instead of going to the icebox the next morning. I shut the icebox and I went to the bedroom and I prayed. I think my prayer went something like this. I'm not sure. And I don't know if I kneeled, stood, lay down, crawled, walked, or howled. But I think that I kneeled with hope. And I think that I stood up with faith. And I think that I've lived with knowledge that I'm getting spiritual help one day at a time, like they told me in this program. To do it the easy way, our way, which is God's way. I've learned that there's three ways of doing everything. Your way, my way, and the right way. And the right way is usually God's way. When you pray, you usually get three answers back. Yes, no, and wait. And wait for the alcoholic? Brother, we don't want to wait for nothing. But we find through this program that we get what we need, not necessarily what we want. We give what is is good for us. God permits us to do many things, but he doesn't always approve of it. So I think on that morning of October the 31st, that the prayer that I said, no matter how simple it was, was sincere. I think that I realized right then and there that I was a child of God. I don't know. Because if we'll remember... When we have, those of us that have had raised children, then when we're trying to teach our kids something, if he wants something, we teach him to say please. After we give it to him, we teach him to say thank you. And I think that's just the way with the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. That if you want something, you say please to God. And you pray in the morning for it. If you do nothing but say three words, God help me. And after you have this day of sobriety, a minute at a time, you say thank you. I used to, when I first came to this program, look at that first step. And I had a son of a gun in time with it. I would admit that I was powerless over alcohol. And then I'd through my hazy eyes, and believe me, your eyes are hazy and you know it. I would look at it and see there where it said that my wife had become unmanageable. You knew she was unmanageable because she divorced me when I was in Jackson prison. Look at all the things that she'd done. But after the fog got started to lift a little bit, and I think the best way that you can explain it is that there's many ways, and I think that a real nice way, that one thing that my a friend of mine mentioned one time about looking at the light. But he mentioned about how blurry the eyes. Well, I, I use it in the same way with, with the alcoholic mind. That if we look at a light, that light right there, for a few minutes and then look out at the people, they're very hazy. Well, that's the way the alcoholic's mind is when he first comes to this program. And it takes a long time. We have to look around and see a lot of things before our mind starts to open a little bit. And we realize that our life is unmanageable. And I was doing that. And then I got to thinking about Jackson Prison. I got to thinking about all the years that these jails through the country and these county jails and these city jails and the police department and these policemen and everybody else managed my life. And I remember then when they went in Jackson Prison, they told me how much time to do. And I remember that they even put me in a cell. Then I remember that they blow the bugle real loud in the morning. 
and they told me to get out behind the guy next to me. And I think that they told me to follow the guy ahead of me, and then I wouldn't get lost on the way to the dining room. So I done that. And then they had a man behind me, so that in case I started to drag a little bit, he would step on my heels, and I would keep catching up. And then when I walked in the dining room, they gave me a, a, a pile of trays there, and I picked that tray up. And I walked over, and they put the food on it, because they knew that I, did, I didn't know nothing about the rules there. And so they put the food on it to make sure that I wouldn't starve to death or that I wouldn't get too much. And then on the way out, they told me about I could pile my dishes up. I didn't even have to wash them. And then I marched back to that cell, and then they told me when I could go to work. Once a week, they turned the laundry right in there on the bed. I didn't even have to go after it. They delivered it. That one sheet a week. That one pillowcase a week. And if I was lucky and had two pairs of state socks and I first went in there, I'd get two clean pairs, three clean pairs, however many I had. And you get that one towel. Then they told you when to take a bath. Then they told you when you could go get a haircut. And it wasn't soon that I learned for two packs you could get a pretty good haircut. You didn't get one of state haircuts where they have scalps yet. I learned them things. And then I got to look at after they finally got these radios in there. They didn't have them at first. And you couldn't even make no mistakes there. You didn't have no dials to turn. You couldn't get mixed up on the station. They got red, white, and blue. Columbia Broadcasting Station, NBC, and, and Neutral. And so it was all fine. They made the decisions. They selected the station for me. I just pushed the plug in. And if I didn't like one, I pushed it in another one. And then at, at night, they'd even turn the lights off for me. I never even had to turn the lights off. And then they shut the radio off for me at night, even. And then they had a man walk him down in front of that cell to see that nobody kidnapped me. Believe me. I began to realize how the hell unmanageable my life was. They really managed it. I had no decisions to make. And I was up Marquette and March and I seen the new cell block that they got up there. They really got it even tailor-made now up there for them guys. Them guys, hell, when I get ready to retire, I'm going up to Marquette. <laughs> you don't even have no problems with water up there. There's no valves on, on in the shower. You can't get too much cold water or too much hot water. You don't have to do and worry about that. You just push a button and the water comes out for a couple of minutes and you get all soaking wet. Then you soap up. Then when you want to rinse off, you press the button again and the water comes out all mixed. You don't have to worry about no decisions. Then they wonder why a guy can't, can't manage his life when he gets out of one of them joints. They even tell you how the hell to mix the water. So I looked at that and I remembered how unmanageable my life certainly must have been. And I realized then that it was all through alcohol. And I, I was told by my sponsors and other people in this program that if I wanted to follow the principles of alcoholic anonymous and take these steps as they are, that I wouldn't have no trouble. And I went to my first meeting. I'll never forget it because I, I'd like to impress upon you how important it is to attend meetings. The first meeting I went to was in a home. And in this house I walked in, a, in the bay window in that house was bigger than that door. And it was wider. And I looked at, at this fellow that was there, Henry Van Dyken, a guy that, who's dead now, and a wonderful AA, or a mercy on his soul. And I looked at him and I said to my sponsor, I says, what in the hell is he doing here? And he says, uh, Henry? I said, yeah. He says, hell, he lives here. He owns this house. I says, lives here, owns this house. I looked around, big stone fireplace down there, I'm trying to figure that out. Who in the hell did he rob to get money to buy this house? I figured that's the only way he could get it. Then I found out that he's been sober four and a half years. Four and a half years. Jeepers, creeper. These guys who are sober for two weeks a month, hell, that didn't impress me. Because I've been there sober that long myself. But here was Henry sober four and a half years. I wanted to be like Henry. Because the last time I knew Henry before I went to Jackson prison, he was getting evicted from a little four-room apartment with five kids in it. I'd went out there with him. And we were throwing this beer in the icebox and his wife run him and I and the beer out. And so we went upstairs with a little blonde and drank. 
Yes, I remember that, and I wanted to be like Henry. And Henry told me then, he says, if you have trouble, he says, and things get going rough, he says, you call me. He says, but you called me before, Shy, not after. My sponsor used to tell me to call. And I called my sponsor. And it got to the point that he finally one day, always at 6 o'clock, I got homework at 5 myself, and I always about 6 o'clock. Finally one day, Larry says, I knew damn right well it was you. I just can't get ready to sit down and eat a steak. You, you told me if I had any problems, Larry, to call you. I said, I got problems. He says, hell, I never seen a guy with so many problems. So I said, okay. So it happened to me at, at night, too, that I would get a compulsion to drink. Three, four o'clock in the morning, I would pick up the telephone and I called Henry Van Dyken. And Henry said, do you know what time it is? I said, certainly, I'm sober. It's four o'clock in the morning. He said, when the hell are you calling me at four o'clock in the morning for? I said, you remember what you told me, Henry? That any time I wanted to drink the car you, that would help you more than it did me? Well, I'm giving you a chance to help yourself right now. I said, I got a compulsion to drink. I want to go drink. And he says, you want me to come over, shy?" And I said, no, Henry, just talk to me. And he would talk to me. And for five years in this program, I had a compulsion to drink. And I know what it is. I know what that driving compulsion is. I've seen others with it. Many of them. Some recognize it, some didn't. But the compulsion to drink is terrible. It's terrific. But there is an answer. And I think that one of them is that a man or woman can reach their greatest height while upon their knees. I think another one is to call another AA before you take a drink, not after. It's just like an alcoholic coming out of prison. The time to get a hold of a sponsor is before. Because before you even go see the pro man. Because he ain't no good to have pro man or anybody else after he's had eight, ten slugs of whiskey in his belt. Believe me on that. So in AA we say, before, not after. It's a little bit late then. So I feel sure that people that attend meetings within themselves, whether they realize it or not, are doing a great piece of 12-step work. I, for one, will never forget my sponsors. I will never forget the man to listen to me on the other end of the telephone at four o'clock in the morning. Many times, though he's dead and been dead a year this month, I will never forget. I know a lot of times a lot of us have a lot of poor ways of showing our gratitude. But I think that the strongest tool in the kit of mercy of alcoholic anonymous is gratitude to our fellow man. Being grateful to walk down the streets sober and to reach out a hand of friendship. To say, welcome, brother. You're one of us. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to call me. But mean it when you say it. Oh, I know that there's all we procrastinate a lot of times. I know that. I have been guilty of it. I know that I have taken the inventory of Shy Walker many, many times. And I know what's within me. And I know a lot of other people have taken my inventory many, many times. Some of them are staying sober. I have a friend, close friend. He's been around this program better than 20 years. He's taken my inventory up and down. At times he stays sober, at times he gets drunk. But I owe a deep debt of gratitude to that man because that man has showed me and told me many times what not to do. He is an example. If he can never be used for nothing else, 
He can always be used for the horrible example. I think that all of us within ourselves have something special within us. And I think that for so many years we've been so busy trying to be somebody else that we never took time to be ourselves. And now that we have and we look in the mirror, we realize that we got better within us than the people that we tried to be. And they told me that. You people told me to just be myself. And that's all I try to be. I'm nothing fancy. I don't want to be anything fancy. I don't know nothing about any big words. All I tried to use them, I had a head tricker that lived with me for three and a half years. Harry remembers them. And uh, he was trying to get me to say all these words. He even was teaching me to say uh, anonymous. I, I don't know if I say it right yet or not. And he was saying, now say Annie Mouth. Annie Mouth. And he was trying to teach me these different words. And so a couple of times I was up to him, another friend of mine who was an alcoholic, Dr. Burrow. He said, what the hell are you trying to say? And I was trying to use some of these big words that this head shrinker was teaching me. And I said, well, I said, Doc Paul told me to use them words. He said, the hell with Doc Paul. He said, you be shy walker. He said, nobody's going to know you if I use them words. He said, you don't even know what you're talking about. I thought I was telling the truth. I didn't. But I thought I was supposed to. Because he told me where to use them, but I was putting them in the wrong place. The hell it was, I was putting them after when I should have been putting them before. You know, he's getting the, getting the horse in the rear of the cart. So in the end, they, they teach us to just be ourselves. And to realize that if God wanted somebody else or somebody else, he would have made us somebody else. So when you and I start looking at the jigsaw of the 12 steps, and believe me, it is a jigsaw. Because it's a mixed up mess to us that first come to AA. I says, like the big book says in chapter 5, my God, what an order. How can I do it? Oh, I jumped around. I was a first and twelve stepper for a long time. Oh, I didn't know nothing about turning my will and life over to God. I turned my drinking problem over to God, but nothing else. Because I was still picking up a little change off my card table, things like that, dealing with poker and anything, because I just figured that the line of honesty didn't have to be too thin. And I robbed a guy on a train one time, and I'm sitting in a bar in the back in the little restroom, you know, and I got this guy's pocketbook. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to listen to these people in AA a little bit more. They didn't really know what they're talking about. They told me not to worry about nothing, that God would take care of everything. He sent me this guy. To, all I had to do was do the legwork, get the money out of his pocket. I'd done the legwork. I got the pocketbook here. There's hundreds of dollars here to prove it. I said, these people in AA sure know what they're talking about. But the legwork was in the wrong direction. So the thought come to me that what Henry Van Dyken always used to say, you got to be honest and take an inventory. So I did take an inventory of that guy's pocketbook right then and there. I counted it. And I found that there's $2,000 worth of traveler's checks in there. And I got to thinking, now, geez, if I endorse them traveler's checks and get them cash, and then I get caught, hell, I won't be honest. So I didn't take the traveler's checks. Then I looked at these $100 bills in there, and I, I thought then about that, being honest and taking an inventory. They didn't mean that I had to take an inventory of that pocketbook. They meant I had to take an inventory of me. So I just reached in there and took some money and stuck it in my pocket, sit down alongside this guy and dropped the, his pocketbook in his coat pocket. Now that was my line of honesty, $68 is all I took. But I thought I was being honest because I didn't take all his money. That was better than it used to be. <laughs> But after 20 months in this program, I went to Father Powell in Renzelaire, and I spent four hours with him. And I found out that the line of honesty was a little bit different. And the inventory you took wasn't of a guy's pocketbook. And different things like that after sitting with him. Oh, I know that these people in AA told me, but I didn't, didn't tell them too much about me because I didn't trust these people in AA. 
I said that if I told them a lot of things, that they'd go tell the police department and I'd be back in Jackson prison. So I didn't dare tell them. I was still on parole. But I took it over to Father Fowl and I sit with him. And he didn't tell me that I had to go to the police department or do anything else. He told me to start getting honest with Shiawaka. And that meant all the way. Not when I was in a card game to pick up 90 cents off the guy next to me. Or the guy on my left take the change of a $10 bill or something like that. Or to be dealing folk when I should take a quarter or I'll take a dollar and a quarter. He didn't tell me that. He just says, don't do it, period. And I found out that he told me the truth. Because I haven't had no trouble. Oh, I've had trouble with my thinking. Because I think all of us have trouble with our thinking. I don't have a drinking problem today. I turn it over to God. But I still have a thinking and a living problem. Something I think that all of us have in every walk of life. And the proof of that is that the story of the farmer who had this boy, and he figured that he was going to take this boy to the head shrinker because he just didn't seem to act right. And so he went into the doctor's office, and the doctor put the boy up on the couch, and he says, now he says, when I answer these questions, you answer them. The first thing that comes to your mind. So he says, now he says, son, he says, you was in bed in this farmhouse, he says, and all of a sudden he says, you heard this cow out in the barn flatten and caused up a big fuss. You jumped out of bed and walked out there in your bare feet and you stepped in something soft and mushy. What would that be? He said, why, a newborn calf. That's right, son, that's right. He said, no, son, he says, what is it that this cow has four of that your mother only has two of? Why, legs. He said, that's right, son, that's right. Now, son, he says, what is it that your daddy has in his pants that your mother doesn't have hers? He says, why, pots. He says, that's right, son, that's right. About that time, the old man started over towards that kid, and he says, don't you hit that kid. He says, hit him, hell, he says, I'm going to get up on a couch. I already missed the first three. How was your thinking? How many did you miss? I think that that goes with all of us, that it boils down to how we're thinking now. And I don't think that there's anything that will ever take the place of time in this program. Because the more that we're around, the more that we learn and we re realize how little we really knew at the start. Because as time marches on, our minds become more and more open. And there's nothing that any of us can ever say that hasn't been said before. Because they tell us that it's all a repetition. It's all over and over again. The book was written in 1939, and there's people in AA that helped write the book, and they're still reading it. Because every time you pick up the big book, you find something that you missed before. I know that a lot of times that we become ungrateful, that word that I spoke about. And the proof of it is, I'm going to ask a few questions. You answer them to yourself. I would like to ask you how long since you set up with a nice right drunk, a real nice stinky one, a real nice one that was heaving all over every once in a while. A real nice one that would cuss you out and try to push you around. Yes, how long have you and I set up with a nice right drum? I would like to ask how many, how long since you read a big book? I hate like hell to ask this question. How many of you even own a big book? I'm not selling books. That's not my business. I'm not a book salesman. But I want to stay sober. And they told me that if I wanted to stay sober, to use the tools that's in AA. And you will stay sober. And this big book of alcoholic and this is one of those tools. It's one of the big principles of AA. 
and you'll find a lot of little principles right along with it on the inside. Believe me, you will. You'll get what you want in this program. And many times a person tells me that they left an AA meeting and they didn't take nothing with them from the meeting, and I ask them one thing. Did you bring anything to carry it in? Just as simple as that. Did you come with an open mind? Because I know that any time I go into a store with all these shelves the way they're loaded, I gotta get me a basket. And I certainly don't need everything that's on them shelves. I might want a lot of them, but I take the basket and I put in that basket just what I need. And when I leave, I've taken something from the store with me. So when I come to the store of AA, I bring a basket right here, an open mind. And I also keep an open heart. I try to leave my fellow man in and let him roam around. Let him help themselves to some of the souvenirs that you and I have been so fortunate to be given. Because it's all by the grace of God. It's all by the grace of God that you and I are here today. Because I think that there's about a hundred a day going down the road to alcoholism that are traveling one way and one way only into oblivion and death. And by the grace of God, I am one of them like you that have found a way to stay sober one day at a time. None of us can stay sober forever. None of us can grab a hold and hang on to all that there is in AA. We piecemeal it a little bit at a time. Because as time marches on, we realize things that we heard back ten years ago and now they're just starting to sink in. Because don't forget, at that time, ten years ago, we wasn't ready to accept what was given to us. Our mind wasn't conditioned. Because this program is a program of conditioning. Just like you and I. That the house that we live in is this house right here. Us. You and I. And that in chapter 11, it tells us that we get our own house in order in a vision for you in this great book of Alcoholic Anomalous. And it also tells you in there that we'll all meet on the happy road to destiny. But how can I meet anybody if I don't condition myself so that I can accept the gifts of God that's handed to me for free by you, my brother and sister. You give it to me, and you give it to me with a free will. There's no strings attached. You don't, again, like I said, put a price tag on it. You don't do it for any glory. You do it for a very selfish reason. Somebody done the same thing for you. And you found that that person that gave it to you was staying sober. So you want to stay sober. My sponsor asked me after a few months in this program if I wanted to stay sober. He said, now that you've got sober, do you want to stay sober? And I think that's in damn important. First, we've got to get sober. And then we have to stop and think, do we want to stay sober? And then we have to stop and realize that it's easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. Because we go through hell, all of us. And he told me if I wanted to stay sober, to do what I was asked in AA within reason, attend meetings, and do 12-step work. And I'd never have no trouble. And I found out through the years that he told me the truth. I also found out down through the years that not only did I get sobriety and a little bit of peace of mind, but you give me trust. After I was in AA a few years, about a year, we got a haul. 
And I was trusted to be janitor in that hall. I was trusted with a key. I was trusted to make the coffee. They knew I wouldn't take it down and cut down to the boys on the tracks. They knew that I wouldn't sell the furniture up there. At least they had faith that I wouldn't. And faith is sanity. And fear is insanity. And you and I know that. We had it for a long time. And they had faith. And by golly, I didn't either. And then pretty soon, I think I was around there about three years. And they trusted me to be chairman at a closed meeting one time. I think I was around there about six years. And I finally trusted to be chairman at an open meeting. See, I was like that mule, you know. I had to get hit in the head all the time. I was around there about eight years, and I finally trusted with the money. I trusted to be secretary and treasurer. And you know, none of that money stuck to them with slimy little fingers. They got it all back. And then in the year, then I was finally trusted to be general service representative. And then they thought enough of me and trusted me enough to be committeeman. And then in the year of 1958 and 59, I was trusted to be the servant. The New York office, I was delegate for Southwestern Michigan. Oh, I wasn't like elected by a landslide vote. My name came out of the hat. And I always say it was an act of God. But at least I was trusted to be a faithful and trusted servant of AA. I was trusted to do the bidding of the people in southwestern Michigan. And I found that the trust that you people give me was the greatest trust that can be bestowed upon a human being. I was trusted with your little worries, your little cares. Yes, and the big ones too, a lot of times. But the other trust that I was given was the, another great trust. I was trusted to carry the message of alcoholic anomalous to the sickly drunk that's still out there on the streets. How wonderful it was to be trusted by God today when yesterday I wasn't trusted by man. Trust is a great thing, my friend. I will forever and eternally be grateful to the people in AA that have been so good to me and have been so kind to me and have been so understanding with me and have been so trusted, trustworthy of me so that I can try and put back a little bit of what I got from this program and the many things that if I was allowed to stand up here for two weeks I could never tell you of all the things that have been given to me by you people I know and you know without a bit of doubt that there isn't any man or woman that comes into this program that ever has to apologize for being new they're just as good as anybody that's been around for 25 years. Because this is one program that you can become new in one hell of a hurry. One drink and you're brand new again. Never do I feel that I am any better than anybody else. But by the same token, I don't feel that they're any better than me. And I thank AA and the people that put the traditions in the program of Alcoholic Anonymous, because Tradition One says that our common welfare comes first, that our recovery depends upon our AA unity. We don't come here to fight with nobody. If I want to fight with people, I'll go back to the bar. I could get in fights there without even half trying. Here, we depend upon unity, and in unity we get strength. And I didn't come to AA to have somebody manage my life, to tell me how to manage my life or tell me what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. I came to AA to get sober. I came to AA because I had an alcoholic problem. But I found many other things besides sobriety in this program. And I found that I could turn my will and my life over to God as I understood him. I don't turn it over to you 
Because if you're so good on managing somebody else's life, what in the hell are you doing here? You can't even manage your own. So I learned that in AA, we don't come to manage somebody else's life, or we don't come to have somebody else manage our own life. We come to AA to help us get straightened out with our drinking problem. And then we find the many other gifts that are given to us, the spiritual way of living, which is a wonderful way. And you and I have learned all these things, and we've got it all for free. But yet when the basket is passed, we're like the guy that says to his sponsor, hell, I ain't going to that AA meeting anymore. He says, you told me this thing was for free. Every time I go to a meeting, it's shoving a basket underneath my nose. Put in money. The hell with that AA business. I ain't going no more. This old wise sponsor says, just a minute, my friend. If I felt like you, I probably wouldn't go either. He says, but let me tell you a story. He says, my wife and I, he says, before we married, was working in a factory. We both making good money. And all of a sudden, I decided that if I marry that woman, and we're working, we can live on her, my wages and put hers in the bank in a joint bank account. That would be pretty sweet. So we got married. Well, we wasn't married too long before my wife quit work because she got pregnant. So we lost that money. And then it wasn't too long before that she had to go to the hospital and she had to have that baby. And then there was hospital bills. Then pretty soon it was diapers. And then pretty soon the kids started growing up with other clothes. And then he was going to school. Then pretty soon he got to the point that he had to go to college. And I had to get another job part-time to help send him to college. Then pretty soon he had to have a jalopy to drive around, he said. His boy he said, more money, more money, so just keep costing me and costing me and costing me. He says, you know, he says, the second year of college, he says, my son died. He don't cost me anything now. Yes? What do you want? With AA we live. Without it we die. Do you want AA to live? Or do you want us to die? It's entirely up to you, and you alone can make the decision. This is your program. Nobody can kick you out of it. Nobody can take it away from you, because Tradition 3 tells you that, that the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. A guy can be laying on the floor, blind drunk, and he can say that I'm a member of AA, and who are you and I to say that he isn't? Because who are you and I to be start playing God and say whether he or she has a desire to stop drinking or not? How do you know whether they have a desire to stop drinking or not? And I think if there's ever anything that makes the angels in heaven weep, it's one alcoholic judging another. Oh, I don't want no halo, and I don't want to sprout no wings. Because if I sprout wings, I'm going to fly right into a bar. And then that damn halo will, uh, will slip down and choke me, and I won't be able to get the drink down. No, I just want to be me. I just want to remember that guy and gal that's out there walking the streets. There might be one of that hundred a day that goes down that road. I know that AA can't be bought by you and I, by the coin of man, but it can be purchased for us through the currency of God and complete surrender. We quit fighting. We surrender to victory. The greatest victory that you and I can ever find. When we come to the little old door marked AA, at first we battered and we couldn't knock it down, but then we stooped and we entered. Very simple. You must learn that. But a lot of us have to learn it the hard way. We fight things. But finally we surrender. And we find that we have just gained a victory. And we find that a great gift is to watch a so-called baby in AA. I think the reason they call them babies is because you know you have a bottle of with the baby and you take it away, they start crying. A lot of us start crying when they take the bottle away from us, you know. 
And I think that's probably one of the reasons to watch this pigeon and her baby grow. To watch him get sober. And pretty soon he'll become a law and he'll say, I want you to meet so-and-so. And then pretty soon there'll be someone saying, you see that guy over there? That's my sponsor. And you just sponsor the other guy. How great it is to watch another fellow come up that road. And I think that you and I know that why should we spend our good money to get sick when we can stay well for free? Just as simple as that. And when they say to keep this program simple, I like it that way. It's not necessarily simple, but I told you what a jigsaw. These 12 suggested sets was to me. I put the first one down and I could see that it fitted in the right place. But I tried to put three, I tried to put five, I tried to put 12, but it wouldn't fit. But finally I put two right alongside of it and it fit. And finally I put three, four, and right on down the line, as they told me. And down through the years, I finally got these 12 pieces put in the jigsaw program of Alcoholic Anonymous. And I found that it has made a picture. And the picture I found that it made was a picture of Shy Walker. I could see myself as I have been in the past. I can see myself as I am today. I can see myself as I can be if I follow the principles of the program of Alcoholic Anonymous one day at a time. And you too have taught me that a good idea might make me money, but only a high ideal will keep me happy. You too have taught me that a good idea might make me big before man, but only a high ideal 